many years ago, we met a man, and when he was introduced, he was introduced to us as sufferer. We were taken back by that because we couldn't understand how his parents could have given him a name like sufferer. You know, we have heard of people who, for instance, who have named their children some odd names that have been a terrible burden. Uh, there was a family who had six kids and started not naming them number one, number two, all the way to number six. But sufferer, that was hard. Until we discovered that that was not the name that his parents had given him. He had actually given himself that name. He didn't have much to eat. He didn't have a place to live. He was thin, gaunt. And he thought that that was the best name to apply himself to himself, sufferer. But as I think of this man, despite all of his troubles and hardship in life, there is truly only one who can bear this name legitimately, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One of the most moving account or accounts of the sufferings of our Lord, the one who is truly the sufferer, occurs in the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see an example of the suffering of the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. All three Gospels, synoptic Gospels, record this agony in Gethsemane. In the account of Luke, the sufferings of our Lord in this garden occurs after the anointing of our Lord at Bethany, after the Passover predictions and the Passover meal with his disciples. Mark tells us that they, after they had sung a hymn, they crossed the Kidron Valley, the same valley that David had crossed centuries before, weeping. This is an ominous night, dangerous times. And Jesus climbs the western slopes of the Mount of Olives with his disciples en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they travel, Jesus predicts that his disciples are going to abandon him, to deny him, to turn away from him. And they vehemently protest their loyalty to be. Peter says, I will never do this. And Jesus predicts that he would deny him three times, even before the cock crows twice. In verses 32 to 42 of Mark 14, they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. The term Gethsemane literally means oil press. This was then an olive grove, a place where 
olive, the olive plant was grown. And it seemed that there was a mill there where they crushed the olives and turned it into oil. This was a garden that Jesus knew very well. Because both Luke and John tells us that Jesus met there frequently with his disciples. It was a place of resort, a place of solace with his disciples, a place of safety. And Jesus makes his way into the Garden of Gethsemane. It is because he frequently came to this place that Judas knew exactly where to find him. And we are told that our Lord enters the garden and tells the larger body of disciples to sit and to wait. And he takes with him the three closest disciples. He calls them aside to come with him. Peter, James, and John. And Mark tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ began to be troubled and greatly distressed. And he tells the disciples to remain there and to watch. He goes some distance and he prays to the Father. And he returns and finds the disciples asleep. Peter had said, I will never abandon you. I will never give up on you. But he cannot even watch for an hour. Jesus goes away and he prays the same prayer he had prayed. And he returns and they're still sleeping. He does the same thing a third time and he finds them sleeping. But this time he awakens them and he says to them, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is a significant hour of darkness, a marshalling of the forces of hell. The betrayer is at hand. But what I want us to focus on is the particular suffering of our Lord in this text, primarily found in verses 34. And 36. I want us to look at this suffering and seek to draw out some insights regarding the nature of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I want us to note the emotional intensity of Christ's suffering. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and greatly distressed. The term troubled could mean amazed. But here it refers to an intense emotional state. He was greatly distressed. That he was, he began to fear and to dread greatly. There is a sense something shocking about this description. To read of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having taken his three closest disciples with him, that he was troubled and deeply distressed. And he goes on and he says, My soul is exceedingly 
sorrowful even to death. My heart, he says, is so weighed down with sorrow that I am almost at death's door. You see, something of the pathos of the emotional intensity in Christ's suffering. And I would suggest part of this reason why Christ is so overcome, so much in shock and in fear and in horror, lies in the reality of the exclusivity of the suffering. Because even though he is with his disciples, he is truly alone. There is something about the aloneness of Jesus. That he enters into a suffering that none else can enter or truly comprehend. He takes these three disciples with him. They are his closest companions. They are there to encourage him, to exhort him, to stay the course. And while he wrestles with strong bulls of Bashan, while he wrestles with the powers of darkness, they are asleep. There is a cosmic battle on the way, but they are sleeping. You see, there is this aloneness, this exclusivity to suffering that Jesus alone can enter in and only he alone can understand. But this suffering, in its intensity, points not only to the exclusivity of Christ's suffering, it points to the humanity of Christ. Gethsemane reminds us of Christ's true humanity, that he shares human nature without sin. We see something of the emotional life of Jesus. Yes, he had an emotional life. We see in the gospel account such emotion as anger when he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out of the temple and told them that they were turning the house of prayer into a den of thieves. Mark 11. The chief emotion, we are reminded by the great New Testament scholar B.B. Warfield that our Lord exhibited was that of mercy or compassion for which we spoke this morning. But you see examples of his compassion when a leper came to him and kneeling and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus looking at this man that was loathed by everyone. But people, when he came into town, everybody scattered because they did not want to be near a leper. Jesus was moved to compassion. And he says, I am willing, be thou clean. And he touched him. Our Lord was the one who, when he came to Lazarus' grave, wept. This our Lord, when he saw the woman of Nain following behind the funeral procession of her son, was moved in the heart. When he saw the large numbers of people, the multitudes, a sheep without a shepherd, he was moved. When the multitude had been with him for three days without food, our Lord was compassionate and moved. But here we see a different emotion. We see extreme fear and trembling. We see the emotional intensity of our Lord's suffering because he trembled before the presence 
of the Holy God. It's something to be said that a perfect Savior trembles in the garden. I want to suggest to you that part of this suffering and intensity of his suffering is not only to be seen in terms of the exclusivity of his suffering, the fact that he's alone in suffering, and that the suffering reveals his true humanity, but part of it is because of the ferocity of Satan. You must understand that throughout the Lord's ministry and throughout his life, there was an encounter with Satan. And even here in the garden, this was now the hour of darkness. In Luke 22, 53, our Lord could say, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, Satan opposed him. Satan sought to dissuade him, to turn him aside, to seek an easier way. You don't have to take this pathway. But here, Mark tells us, that our Lord Jesus Christ began to be troubled and to be deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch. In the garden of Gethsemane points to the emotional intensity of Christ's suffering. It also points secondly to the spiritual gravity of Christ's suffering. One of the questions, I think, that is pertinent to ask is why did Jesus suffer in this manner? In verse 36, we are told in verse 35 that Jesus, after he tells them that his heart is breaking, he went a little farther and fell on the ground. In ancient times, Men usually stood and prayed with their hands raised. But our Lord Jesus fell on the ground in an act of contrition and submission. He's overcome with grief. And he prays that if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. He summarizes in verse 35 the nature or the prayer of our Lord. But in verse 36, he explicitly tells us what the Lord prays. He says, Abba, Father, you see the intimacy, an intimacy that will desert him on the cross. When he changes from Abba to my God. But here he says, Abba, which is Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What is it that caused the suffering of our Lord? What is it that shook our Lord so greatly? That caused this intensity of suffering? I want to suggest that it was the spiritual gravity of the hour. But fundamentally, it is not because the Lord feared physical death on the cross. If it was because the Lord feared physical death, that he quaked, that he was terribly afraid, then it would have meant that our Lord was less courageous than many of his disciples who had died for him and died willingly and courageously. 
But something else is going on. And if we are to understand the suffering of the Lord, we need to understand not only its emotional intensity, but its spiritual gravity. And to, be, to capture a sense of this gravity of, our, of the Lord's suffering, we need to look at what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You notice that in verse 36, the Lord describes his suffering as a cup. Take this cup away from me. What does cup refer to? I want to suggest to you that the term cup appears here metaphorically. It stands for a reality. Generally, in the Old Testament, cup has a variety of meanings. It may mean literally to the vessel from which people drink. But oftentimes, it carries a metaphorical or a non-literal meaning. It is used as an imagery. Sometimes it carries a positive notion. For example, in the Psalms, we hear, for instance, in Psalm 16, verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot, Psalm 16, verse 5. In Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely... In instances like this, and I could quote another one, but instances like this, cup refers to God's blessings. But I want to argue that when Jesus says, all things are possible for you, take away this cup from me, he is not using cup in the sense of divine blessings. He's not saying, Lord, my cup runs over. I want you to take away blessing from me. What else can cup refer to? Well, very often in the Old Testament, cup is a metaphor for judgment. Let me just point out in the many references a few. In Isaiah 51 verse 17 the prophet uses cup to, revert to the, refer to the judgment of God. And particularly, the judgment that God will send in the form of the Assyrian captivity. Awake, awake, the prophet says. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. And drained it out. What the prophet Isaiah is saying is that the people of God in the Assyrian captivity, God has handed them a cup of fury of his wrath and of his anger, and they have drunk it. Conversely, Isaiah in chapter 51:22 sees the restoration of the, of the people of Israel from captivity as a removal of the cup of trembling and of divine fury. 
So in Isaiah 51:22, he says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. Restoration from captivity and from punishment is viewed now as a removal of the cup of God's fury from their hand. Jeremiah describes the judgment to come upon the nations as drinking the wine cup of the fury of the Lord. So in Jeremiah 25, 18 to, 15 to 18, he says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to me, Take this cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Then I took from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. One more. Ezekiel warned Judah that she will suffer the same calamity as her sister by drinking from the cup of divine judgment. You have walked in the way of your sister. You have behaved immorally like the northern kingdom, the Lord is saying. Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. And you shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much, that is, the cup. Ezekiel 23, 32. All of these instances, the cup of the fury, the cup of staggering, refers to the cup of wrath, the cup of divine anger. And to understand the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, take this cup away from me, he's referring to the cup of wrath. You see, if we are to understand the sufferings of the Lord, we have to understand its spiritual nature, its spiritual severity, that what Jesus faced was nothing short of divine anger and wrath. The idea of God's anger today is an embarrassment. When we talk of the scandal it is a scandal today even in what appears to be Protestant churches to talk about divine anger. Years ago, we, we were conversing with a well-known figure, and he says, I, I love the God of the New Testament, but I don't quite care for the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a bloodthirsty God. But the God of the New Testament is nice. We need to know that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. It is in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul says that God's wrath is not reserved simply for the life to come, but God's wrath is being revealed even now in this world. And one of the ways that God's wrath is revealed is that God is giving men over to their sins. He pleads and he warns. He cries out to men and women to turn from their sins, but they persist. And eventually God says, you want your sins, I'll give them to you. You can have them and they will damn you. You see, it is this sight, it is this sight of the sufferings that awaited Jesus, not merely being nailed to a cross, but to come under the wrath and the anger of the eternal God that shook him to his core. It is the only way you can understand when he says, all things, Abba, are possible for you. Take away this cup. He's saying, take away your anger from me. You see, he had not yet come to the cross, but he could see the dark clouds looming in the distance. He could see already the portent of the the lightning, and he could hear the thunder of divine judgment already. And he begins to fear. My heart is so distressed, he says, even to death. What is it about the wrath of God? We need to know that the wrath of God is not an irrational pettiness in God. It's not a spitefulness. God's wrath is linked to his holiness. God's wrath is the exercise of his holiness against everything that contradicts his nature. It is God's inflexible response to sin. Why is it that Jesus trembles? Because of the wrath of God. Well, it's because of a few things that he knew about divine wrath. He had never experienced the wrath of God. But he knew what it was. And the first thing that he knew about divine wrath is that it is real. It was revealed in the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, a curse was pronounced. The Lord says that the day you eat of this fruit, you shall die. And though it took hundreds of years, eventually you come to Genesis 5, this man lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. And over and over you hear, the, you hear the, the, the same refrain, this man lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. The wrath of God is being revealed in death. You come to Genesis 6, and you hear that men were so wicked that God decides to save one man who finds grace in his sight to save him and his family. And God in his wrath wiped the earth clean and started again. We see great nations, great kings whom the Lord humbled in his wrath. You see, Jesus knew the wrath of God is real. 
Paul saying, says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But he knew something else about the wrath of God. That the word of God is destructive. In Psalm 90, the psalmist says, who knows the power of your anger? For as a fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Most people today don't think of the wrath of God. They think of God as innocuous. Somehow they think that they have been immunized against God. Not sure what kind of immunity they have been granted. But somehow we think that we are immunized against the wrath of God. But that's not how Jesus saw it. The wrath of God is not only real, but it is destructive. Let me quote to you a little bit lengthier from one Old Testament text. Nahum chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. The writer says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the fierceness of his anger. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. What the writer is saying is that when God is angry, even the mountains will melt. The very physical universe begins to quake and to shake before the presence of the angry God. We live in a world where men aren't disturbed by God's anger, but I would suggest to you that if anything else is to be feared, is the anger of God. Years ago in one of the churches that I pastored, I was shocked one day when a young lady came in and were talking about her lifestyle and she wanted to go and cohabit with, with, another, with a man who with whom she was not married, and we're looking at the scriptures. And she said to me, she stopped me mid-flight and said, you know, Pastor, the thing I feared more than anything else is loneliness. But not so Jesus. You see, there is none to deliver from his hand. His wrath is real. It is destructive. His wrath is unquenchable. The Bible calls God a consuming fire. It says that his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He brings suffering, anguish and distress. And his anger is infinite as himself. You see, the one who falls under the hand of God and under the anger of God cannot deliver himself. Jesus there in the garden, 
began to taste something of the inflexible mixing of the wrath of God. And he trembled. Abba, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. I fear your wrath. I fear your anger. I do not want to fall under your anger. Would you not deliver me? And the place where we see the fullness of the anger of God fully poured out on Christ is in Mark 15 in the cry of dereliction when Jesus cried out as he suffered under God's wrath, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because you see, the anger of God was not just revealed in physical punishment. It was a spiritual weight. He felt that separation, that void between him and the Father. You see, the sufferings of our Lord not only showed us his emotional intensity, but the spiritual severity. But the infinite suffering of our Lord, the suffering of our Lord shows us its infinite superiority. Because our Lord did not just stop there. He did not just say, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take away this cup from me. But he goes on, and thanks be to God for this next clause. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. We see the emotional intensity of his suffering, the spiritual severity of his suffering. Now we see the infinite superiority of his suffering. The shocking thing here is that our Lord's suffering was voluntary. He gave himself willingly. He saw what lay ahead of him. He saw the fierceness of God's anger. He saw the nails and the jeering. He saw the separation from God which he feared more than anything else. Nevertheless, he says, Lord, not my will, but your will. Lord, I, I surrender to your judgment. I accept your punishment. Lord, I, I give myself to it willingly. Why? Because he is ultimately the obedient son. He has come in the place of sinners to bear our sins and he will not shirk. He will not turn aside. He is human and he fears. But he will not be deterred by his fear. He will go all the way to the end. Not my will, but thy will be done. Not my way, Lord, but your way. Because your way is best. You see, Jesus knew that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that his blood would inaugurate the new covenant. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. He had come to be made a curse for us. He, came to, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He came as a substitution for our sins. He came to bear our wrath. It was by the purpose and foreknowledge of God. You see, this is infinite superior suffering because it is willing suffering. The father hands him the cup and he takes it and he drinks it willingly. 
so the garden of Gethsemane depicts the intensity, the gravity or the severity, and ultimately the superiority of Christ's suffering. But my friends, there are at least three lessons that we must learn from this text regarding the greatness suffering of our Lord. I believe that this text says something first and foremost about sin. I believe that this text, if you read it carefully, will teach you something of the greatness of our sins. Why should Christ suffer in the first place? Why this terrible agony? Why was he so distressed and so greatly troubled? He himself had committed no no wrongdoing. It is primarily because of sin. You cannot understand the life of Jesus. You cannot understand the incarnation or the life lived in obedience or the suffering in the garden or Calvary unless you understand sin. It is our misdeeds. It is our sins, our high-handed sins committed against God that brought Jesus Christ down. We were in debt. We owed God, but we could not pay. So God sent his only begotten son that those who believe in him might have eternal life. But it is sin. We think of sin as mere peccadillos, things that really don't matter. But for God, it was a big thing. Sin is a crime against the justice of God. It's an offense to the nature of God. Sin deserves ultimate condemnation and hell. It is because of the greatness of our sins that God has given us a great Savior. And since we were great sinners, we must have great love for God who gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I must never be comfortable with sin. We must never shelter sin. We must never minimize or deflect sin. But we must flee sin. We must hate sin because Jesus Christ suffered for them. But my friends, the sufferings of the garden not only points to the greatness of sin, it points to the suitability of Christ for us. That in Christ we have a suitable Savior. In the old days, in ancient time, they spoke about noble death. They talked about death. And they pointed out how Socrates was an example of heroic death. He took the cup of hemlock and drank it. And when his friends were weeping, he says, why are you crying? Don't be, don't be crying. He died serenely. But here our Lord Jesus shuddered under the wrath of God, trembled in fear because he has now become sin bearer. And even though he saw the horror of the cross, even though his sweat became like drops of blood, he did not turn away, but he entered into the fight. He accepted the Father's will, and he went through death 
and emerged victorious on the other side. Not my will, but thy will be done. He learned obedience to the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. It is precisely because Jesus feared, nevertheless surrendered to the will of God, that he is now qualified. What I'm, what I'm hinting at is this. That the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ in the garden is part of the qualification of Jesus to be our Savior. That if Jesus did not say, not my will, but thy will be done, he could never have been our Savior. How do we know that Jesus Christ is the right person to be our Savior? Because he was obedient unto death. Because even though he feared, he obeyed. Even when he saw that it was to his disadvantage, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. We have a Savior then who is completely faithful, completely obedient. And he is the Savior that we need. One who satisfies the wrath of God. One who paid a ransom for our sins. Who subdued and defeated Satan. And overcame hell. By his obedience to the Father. Christ is the Savior we need. He is the only sufficient Savior. And any man who turns to him. Who believes in him. Will find in Jesus Christ. One who delivers us. From the wrath to come. There are two more instances in the book of Revelation where God speaks about the wine cup of his wrath being poured out. But Christ has taken the cup of God's wrath and drank it fully that we might be given the cup of salvation. That because Jesus took God's wrath, we have been delivered forever from hell and from wrath. On this very day, the 2nd of April, 2017. There are men and women who have tumbled this very day into hell and there is no hope for them. And maybe you are here. And because of your unrepentant heart, you will follow them also into hell. Because you will not hear and you will not turn. And the warnings of God and the Spirit of God go unheeded. I want to ask you this evening, I want to challenge you this evening to hear the voice of the Spirit. Break from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ before you come under the judgment of God from which you can never escape. And if you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him, you will know full forgiveness and deliverance from judgment. You will be saved now and you will be saved forever. But it takes a turning of heart. It takes faith in Jesus Christ. He is the great Savior. He is the only Savior. He is the loving Savior who calls you, who has shed his blood. Will you receive him this evening? Will you no longer make vain excuses? Will you not say, I'm getting ready, I'm thinking? Will you not trust? Oh, this is the day of salvation. This is the hour of salvation. Will you not receive him and be saved? Because if you put your trust in him, you shall never, ever be put to shame. Let me close by saying, if the text tells us something about sin, its greatness, and tells us about Christ, his suitability, 
It tells us about the need for prayer. What stands before Jesus is the cross. But where is he found? On the eve of his death, what is he doing? Well, he's not socializing. What is he doing? He's praying. There's one more hurdle to cross. The greatest hurdle of the cross. And Jesus is found in the garden before his father praying. And he tells the disciples, watch and pray. Verse 38. These two verbs, watch and pray, are present tense and durative, meaning go on watching and go on praying. Mean live your life and your spiritual life with vigilance and care and pray. Because our Lord Jesus knew that the only way that he could remain faithful, defeat Satan, do the will of God, is by dependence upon the power and the strength of God. And if you and I are going to live a faithful life and do the will of God, we must be vigilant, watch, and we must pray that is depend upon the Lord. At some time, you and I will have our cross to bear. We will have our time of suffering. And how will we, in the hour of challenge, in the hour of testing, in the real moment when all of hell rises against us, how will we distinguish ourselves and bring glory to God? It will not be by our might or by our power, but by seeking God in prayer. Watch and pray. It's interesting that in the account of Luke, it says that when Jesus was praying, that an angel came and strengthened him. You see, supernatural power is only released through prayer. Where did Jesus receive that internal fortitude, that strength to face the cross? Well, on his knees, by seeking the Father in prayer. And this text tells us that though suffering lies ahead of us, God has all the resources that we will ever need. And we unlock that resources, that resource from God by seeking him on our face. So watch, I say unto you, watch and pray for Jesus' sake.